Well, good morning and welcome back. We are continuing in our series, Heroes of Faith. If you've been with us, we've been examining different heroes of faith. And really, the premise of this series comes out of Hebrews chapter 11. If you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, it's considered the hall of faith in Scripture because in this chapter, it lists all these people throughout Scripture who have had just this tremendous faith. The chapter starts off in verse 1 saying, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation, and by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then the chapter continues to go on by saying things like, By faith, Abel offered to God. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, they did this. And so that's really the premise for the series that we're in, Heroes of Faith, looking at how the faith of these people in Scripture impacted their lives and how the faith that we have today should be impacting our lives as well. And so I'm excited today to jump into another story in Scripture, another character who we can learn from their example of faith as we seek to grow as followers of Christ. Before we jump in, though, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the ways in which you use it to guide our lives, to instruct us, to encourage us, and to convict us of our sin. So Lord, we pray that as we spend time reading your word this morning, that you would do those things. Lord, as we grow closer to you, that our lives would reflect you more and more. So deepen our faith in you, deepen our understanding of who you are, and our place uh, in your will, Lord. Now may you just open our ears to your word during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but when I think about biblical heroes of faith, often what comes to my mind are the positive attributes. The men and women that I can think of throughout Scripture who were courageous, who were filled with faith even when it was trying, those who were willing to endure suffering or hardships, those men and women who went against even the cultural norms to follow God's words. That's what I tend to think of when I think of a hero of faith. Rarely do we think of one who lies or deceives or tricks others or runs away from their problems as being how we would describe a hero of faith. And yet that is exactly some of the attributes of our hero of faith we are going to look at this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at some of the aspects of the life of Jacob from the Old Testament and see how we can learn from his struggles that he went through in order to trust God more and endure the struggles that perhaps we find ourselves in today. So we're going to be spending our time in Genesis in a couple different sections of Scripture, but starting in Genesis chapter 25. So I would encourage you to grab a Bible out of the pews, or if you brought your own Bible, uh, to turn to Genesis chapter 25. We will also have it up on the screen. We're going to spend time in kind of three sections of Scripture a day to look at just a part of Joseph's life. While last week we covered Esther's entire life, it was a lot to fit into 35, 36 minutes Jacob's would be much too broad to do in one sermon. So we're just going to pick a few events and see what we can learn about how God uses Jacob to have a faith that we would describe as being someone who is a hero of faith. Before jumping into Genesis 25, where we're going to start in verse 19, I want to give you a little bit of information of what's happening here in this chapter. So Genesis 25 has started off with telling us the death of Abraham. 
the patriarch of the Jewish faith. So Abraham, if you remember a few weeks back, was who God had established a covenant with, that he would bless Abraham, that he would make him a great nation, that his descendants would be greater than the stars in the sky. And so God had established this covenant with Abraham. And so as he dies, readers are left kind of wondering, will the covenant continue? God made this promise, and Abraham has an offspring, Isaac, but will God continue to be faithful to what he said he would do and establish this covenant with him? So the author shares about the generations of Abraham through his concubines, through those who he, when he tried to take things into his own hands and see his line established as he and his wife were waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise that they would bear a son. And so the author of Genesis in the beginning of chapter 25 takes us through kind of those elements of his offspring. But we're still waiting on that promise that God had given that Isaac would continue to carry down the family line from Abraham in this covenantal promise. And so we want to know, has God been faithful? That's what a reader would be wondering as they read about these uh, generations to follow Abraham. And so that's where we're going to jump in now to chapter 25 is when we've moved away from Abraham's uh, generational line with the concubines to Abraham and his son Isaac. So picking up in verse 19 of Genesis 25, it says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aran, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So the text picks up this line from Abraham with the generations of Isaac, showing God's faithfulness to his promise to provide the offspring that his covenant will continue down these lines. And we're told in verse 20 that Isaac, at the young age of 40, married Rebekah. So Isaac marries Rebekah through God's provision. If you want to read more about that, you can go back to Genesis 24 and see how God provides Rebekah for him. But God is faithful in providing a wife for Isaac, and they have a child. But before we get to that point, we see that she is barren, that they have a similar theme that we saw with Abraham and Sarah. Rather than try to take things into their own hands, though, like Abraham and Sarah did, Isaac does the correct thing and first goes to the Lord in prayer. Rebecca and Isaac have a problem. They want to conceive and have a child. They believe the Lord's promise that he would give them kids so that the generational line could continue, and yet they are barren. So what do they do? They go to the Lord in prayer. 
This is a great example for us of what to do when we have struggles, when we have things we don't understand, understand is to go to the Lord with these in prayer. And the Lord grants the request of their heart, and Rebecca conceives. You see, prayer matters. It doesn't always work out exactly like we would hope, but it's so important as followers of Christ that we take our troubles and our concerns and our burdens to the Lord in prayer, that we don't doubt that the Lord truly hears our prayers and cares about the things that we are going through. In verse 22 and 23, we see that the pregnancy, within this pregnancy, the children are struggling within her womb. And Rebecca's confused as to what has happened. But again, much like earlier when they desired a child and they went to the Lord in prayer, she takes her question to the Lord here as well. She takes her concern and question, and the Lord answers and lets her know what is happening. And it's quite interesting to see what the Lord tells her because the babies are still in womb, and the Lord lets her know that there are two nations that are in her womb. Two people from within you shall be divided, and the one shall be stronger than the other. So far, she's probably thinking, okay, that, that sounds fine. But then the Lord tells her that the older shall serve the younger, which in this culture would totally be backwards from what one would expect. One would expect that the younger child would serve the older child. The older child is the one that would receive the abundance of the inheritance. They would be the one who, after their father passed, would be in charge of the family, both the spiritual leader of the home as well as the leader of the home for all aspects. And so for the older to serve the younger is really backwards for this cultural time and for what would be expected. But this prophecy is given to Rebecca by the Lord of what will happen with her children even before they're born. The firstborn, rather than hold all the power, rather than get all the inheritance, will serve the younger. Well, the text moves forward, showing us the birth as it occurs, letting us know that Rebecca does give birth to two boys. The first is described as red and hairy, and thus is given the name Esau. I am so glad that we don't name our kids anymore for how they come out of the womb and based directly on that, but that's how Esau gets his name, red and hairy where Jacob is grabbing his heel, and so he gets the name Jacob for heel grabber. But right away here in the text, it shows us that there is favoritism amongst the parents. Now, as parents who have kids, we always try to say that we don't favor our kids, that we love all of our kids the same, and we try to do that. Usually, parents attempt to do that, to not play favorites. But here in the text, it shows us that truly these parents do have a favorite, that Isaac favors Esau because he's a hunter and he enjoys his game, but Rebekah favors Jacob because he's described as being quiet and dwelling in tents. Well, the stage has been set for these two children to see if the prophecy that the Lord has given will come to fruition. One wonders, how could Esau even end up serving his younger brother, and what would cause this shift in cultural norms in terms of the blessings of their inheritance? We'll take a look with me at Genesis 25, 29 as the story continues. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? 
So Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So we're seeing the story play out. What we've already learned about these two, about um, what they were interested in, about the dynamics of their character, of who they were as a hunter and one as more as a homebody. And we're seeing that play out here in the story. As Jacob is home cooking a lentil stew and Esau is out in the fields, possibly working the fields, possibly hunting. It just tells us that he is out in the field and comes in exhausted. And he smells that there's some stew on and he wants some food. Now, I don't know exactly if it was for sure, uh, you know, a hearty stew or what it was for Esau here, but he is hungry and he's famished to the point where he says, I'm about to die from my hunger. Now, I think he's being a little bit dramatic here in his uh, words, saying he's about to die, but nonetheless, he desires what it is that Jacob has. He wants the stew, and he wants to be fed by his brother who has prepared it. And Jacob sees a moment here where he can have some control over his older brother. Now, who here grew up with older siblings? I'm the youngest with three older brothers And when you get an opportunity to take some control over an older sibling, often you take it as a younger sibling because you're so used to not having that power and control that your older siblings usually have that here Jacob has an opportunity to have some power over Esau. And so rather than be generous with his brother, which would be the kind thing to do, to say, yes, brother, you're famished. Let me get you some stew and some bread. Jacob takes a step back and says, oh, you're really hungry. Well, how about you trade me that birthright that you have, and I'll give you some of this stew. He takes advantage of Esau's weakness here in the moment and offers to trade the birthright for a bowl of stew. Now, there's a lot that we could get into with Esau and Esau trading away his birthright and what it is that he trades away and perhaps doesn't realize the weight of what he's doing in this moment. But we're not really going to get into that today because we're more focusing on Jacob. But this trade is completely ridiculous. It is completely ridiculous that Esau would trade for one bowl of stew his birthright as the firstborn. And you may wonder, well, what is the birthright of a firstborn during this time? Well, the firstborn, like I said, would be the head of the clan, both the spiritual head as well as the head of the household. And being the oldest would ensure that he got at least a double portion of the inheritance. So when the father passed away and the property and the land and everything that they had was divided up, the oldest would get at least a double portion, sometimes even more is what I found. But that's down the road. That's not right now when Esau's hungry and when there's lentil stew to be had. That's some years down the road when his dad passes away, he'll receive that blessing. And he thus entertains Jacob's offer because of what is at the forefront of his mind in this moment. He wants what is there currently and isn't willing to put that aside, his current desires for what someday may be, for what's been told to him. And so he offers to trade with him. Jacob makes him swear that he will give him his birthright and Esau complies, thus trading his birthright for a bowl of stew. Jacob makes good on the trade and gives him the bread and the lentil stew that he so desperately wanted And Esau eats it. And the end of the text shows us, though, the view that Esau despised his birthright. 
We're never told that Jacob did wrong in this moment, even though he is kind of, I think he's taking advantage of his brother. I don't think he's treating him well. But God uses this moment to start to arrange the shift of how the younger will be over the older, how the older will serve the younger, because this is one part of the birthright. The other part is the blessing that the father would give. And we're not going to dive into that text, but Jacob once again tricks uh, Jacob once again tricks his brother and his dad to receive the blessing from his father as well. Jacob wanted Esau's birthright in exchange for the stew. I think that both of these men didn't handle this well. Esau forsaking his birthright, taking advantage of what is right there in the moment, rather than being willing to put aside his current desires for what was promised to him in the future. Jacob continues this path of deceiving as he deceives his father at the urging of his mother and impersonates Esau in order to steal his blessing from his dad. This leads to him having to flee and run away from his land to try to protect his life as Esau wants to kill him for what he's done. So, Genesis 32, as we move forward, we're going to jump ahead because Jacob has left the land. He's now uh, been married to two women. He's seen his, his uh, herds grow. He's seen the Lord's blessing upon him. But he's continued to live with this fear of his brother, this fear of knowing that he tricked Esau, that Esau wanted to kill him because he stole his birthright and his blessing. And so he had run away from his father and his mother, went to his uncle Laban's. He's worked for him for all these years. But now the Lord has called him back home to Canaan. The Lord has told Jacob it's time to return home. So I'm sure he's wrestling with the fact of obeying God and also knowing what waits him with his brother Esau. Knowing that when he left, Esau wanted to kill him for what he had done. So is it safe to return? And yet the Lord has called him back. So he begins this journey back with his kids, with his wife, after 20 years of being gone. And he is scared to death of Esau and what is going to happen. And you see this play out in the text that precede the one that we're going to be looking at as he starts to prepare animals as gifts to go before him to his brother. He's trying to soften his approach and bribe his brother to look upon him with favor. He knows that Esau is coming. He's been told he's coming with an army of men. And so he's preparing to meet him but doesn't know what to expect. And the night before he prepares to meet him, he has an experience that I believe changes Jacob's life completely and changes who he is and changes that dynamic of him becoming someone who steals and who tricks and who runs away from his problems to becoming the man that God created him to be. Look with me at Genesis 32, verse 22. It tells us the same night he arose and took his two wives his two female servants and his eleven children, and crossed the ford at Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. So he's getting rid of all of his stuff so that he's not with them, so that if Esau attacks him, perhaps his children and his wives and his servants will be safe. Perhaps they will be able to escape. And so he sends them off a different direction. And he's left alone. Picking up in verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. 
And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. So we have this moment before Jacob's going to meet Esau. He's terrified of what is to come. He's relied upon tricking people, upon deceiving people, upon running away from his problems, and now he's having to face the one who wants to kill him. And he doesn't know how it's going to go. And as he waits alone, he can't sleep. And he ends up in this wrestling match with God. He's worried about what's going to happen with Esau, trying to take all the precautions he can, trying to control everything by his ability. And yet, when he finds himself in this time alone, that's when he meets God. That's when he ends up wrestling with God. I believe that times alone for us are truly important times. That these are the times that we truly can experience God. Not that we can't experience God in community and in fellowship, but there is something about when we get alone and have that opportunity to be with God that is so crucial in our journey of faith. The Enduring Word commentary in talking about this states that God wanted all of Jacob's proud self-reliance and fleshly scheming And God came to take it by force, if necessary. So God wrestles with Jacob through the night. But the dawn's about to break. And God calls upon Jacob to let him go. But Jacob doesn't want to let him go. He's grasping on with everything that he has. But God touches his hip, gives him an injury to his hip. And the effect of this makes Jacob even more vulnerable to Esau, forcing Jacob's faith to more fully rest upon God and not himself. If necessary, God will cause us at times to limp, to increase our faith. Jacob refuses to let go unless he is blessed. And often when you read this, you think that he's in a position of power perhaps here because he's refusing to let go. But we know that this comes not out of might, but out of desperation on Jacob's part. It's not that Jacob was able to defeat God in this wrestling match, But he's so desperate that he's holding on because he wants to be blessed and he's so worried about what is to come. If you look at Hosea 12, 3 through 5, it talks about this moment. It says, he, being Jacob, took his brother by the heel in the womb. And in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel and there he spoke to us. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. Jacob is finally at a point where he's out of tricks and his own works, and he has no other option but to hold on tightly to God with all that he has. Not a bad place to be. Prior to this wrestling match, Jacob thought that his enemy was Esau, and he was fearful of what what would happen. But his true enemy in this was not Esau, but Jacob's own carnal fleshly nature, which needed to be conquered by God. Jacob needed to submit himself to God. 
And as a result of this encounter with God, Jacob is given a new name in this moment. He will no longer be known by the name that was associated with tricking his brother, the name that he was associating with tricking his father and fleeing his problems and even tricking his uncle at times. But he is now given this new identity as Israel because he has striven with God and with men and has prevailed. Jacob prevailed in the sense that he endured through his struggle until God thoroughly conquered him. When you battle with God, you only win by losing and by not giving up until you know you have lost. This is how Jacob prevailed in this moment. Jacob didn't win in the wrestling match with God. And God knew that he needed to let Jacob go because dawn was breaking. And we know that we can't see God face to face and live. And so commentators have said that what's happening here is as dawn is breaking, the Lord needs to allow Jacob to move on so that he won't see him in the daylight because he won't be able to live. Jacob wants to know who it is that he's wrestled against, and so he asks who it is. He asks for a name of the one that he has wrestled with, but instead of receiving a name, he receives a blessing from the Lord. And even though he desired to know the name, he knows who it is that he has wrestled with, and we see that in verse 30. It says, Jacob called the place for, he called the place Peniel, for he says, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He knows who it is that he was wrestling with. He is aware of what just occurred as he wrestled with God. And yet, he was delivered from this moment. Jacob then limps towards this tense reunion with Esau with a weakened body, but a strengthened faith. Having wrestled with God, he knows his prayers regarding Esau will be answered. Consider what occurred this night through the wrestling match. Jacob started the night worried and concerned about Esau's coming arrival, uncertain of how this meeting would go with his brother, whom he mistreated and deceived. Jacob has a restless night of sleep and spends the night struggling with God and ends the night with God's blessing and with a renewed faith. You see, all of our struggling with God in faith will lead us to peace. Jacob goes on to meet with Esau, and they have a wonderful reunion, and their relationship is redeemed. Esau doesn't come to kill Jacob. He comes to restore their relationship, and they move forward in peace with one another. Jacob's life has many facets to it, but throughout his story of faith, it is revealed through it that God works to accomplish his will, despite our sins and failures. Jacob's life is a work in progress, just like ours. It's one of the reasons I enjoy reading his story is because he's not perfect. He doesn't do everything right. He doesn't always make the right choice, and yet God still works through his life. God still uses him, and God still blesses him as well as he submits to the Lord. We have seen his character revealed throughout the text, and it's lacking he relied on trickery and fleeing his problems throughout his life, and he needs God's grace, just like we do. We've seen God drive Jacob to the end of himself, showing him that his cunning ways could not gain him favor, but only his surrender to God. God's wisdom in the end causes Jacob to limp, serving as a reminder of his need to lean upon the grace of God rather than his own cleverness. I believe that Jacob's life has many lessons to teach us. 
But there's three things that I want to point out from our text today that I think are important for us as we seek to live lives following after the Lord. The first is a reminder that God is in control. In Jacob's life, we see him take control of the blessings he desires, or we see Jacob seek to take control of the blessings he desires rather than trusting God's timing and ways. I imagine that Jacob had heard the prophecies that were given to his mother when he was in the womb, prophecies that the older would rule over the younger. Perhaps not. Maybe they kept it from him. But whatever the case, Jacob tries to take things into his own hands, his own timing, his own ways, rather than waiting upon the Lord to reveal his path. God had told Rebekah that Jacob would be blessed, that Esau would serve him. But often, it's hard to rely upon the word of the Lord when we want to take control ourselves and ensure that what we want happens. Far too often, we try to make certain that God's will occurs in our lives rather than trusting that God is in control. I was reading in August of 1994, a Korean airjet skidded across a rain-soaked runway and rammed into a safety barricade in Korea. All 160 passengers escaped to safety, and just moments after, the plane exploded into flames. So what caused this near tragedy? Well, according to news reports, the pilot and co-pilot had gotten into a fistfight over who was in charge of the landing controls. Obviously, one of the pilots has the right to land the plane and wouldn't give it up. And the other pilot wouldn't give up fighting for that right as well. You see, we must recognize that God is in control and give up our attempts to control. This sounds easy, and I know it's not. I've had my own experiences in my life of trying to control the outcomes, of trying to ensure that the path would go the way that I hope it will go. And the thing that I've learned is that my desires, the path that I think is best, unless if it's God's path, it is not the best. I can have in my mind that I think one way is the absolute best path to journey on, but if that's not God's path, it's wrong and is not the best for me. God's way is the best way. His plan for your life is the best plan, and it is greater than anything that you can come up with on your own. The sooner that you recognize this and allow God to have complete control, submitting to his word and to his ways for your life, that is when you will experience the joy of surrender to Christ. The second thing that I think that Jacob teaches us is that God redeems. I was reading a story about an orphan boy who was living with his grandmother when their house caught fire. The grandmother, trying to get upstairs to rescue the boy, unfortunately perished in the fire. The boy's cries for help were finally answered by a man who climbed on an iron drain pipe and came back down with the boy hanging tightly to his neck. Several weeks later, there was a public hearing held to determine who would receive custody of the child. A farmer, a teacher, and the town's wealthiest citizen all gave the reasons they felt they should be chosen to give the boy a home. But as they talked, the lad's eyes remained focused on the floor. Then a stranger walked to the front and slowly took his hands from his pockets, revealing severe scars on them. As the crowd gasped, the boy cried out in recognition. This was the man who had saved his life. His hands had been burned when he had climbed the hot pipe. And with a leap, the boy threw his arms around the man's neck and held on for dear life. The other men silently walked away, leaving the boy and his rescuer alone. Those marred hands had settled the issue. You see, our full allegiance belongs to God, to the one who saves us. 
Jacob thought that he had to rely upon his own trickery, his own ways throughout his life, only to learn that who he truly needed to rely upon was God. And Jacob witnessed the redemptive powers of God firsthand as the Lord led him back to Esau, as the Lord then redeemed their relationship. And Jacob no longer had to live in fear of the what if. True redemption is found only when we put aside our ways and our plans and seek God alone. And lastly, is the point that blessings are not devoid of struggle. You see, far too often, people will tell us, good-meaning people will tell you that if you follow Jesus, or if you give enough money to the church, or if you give enough money to their ministry, that you will be blessed. This view of blessing is based upon a health and a wealth and an ease of life. It says that if you do X, Y, and Z, then you will reap these benefits. And the benefits are always that you will be rich, that you will be healthy, and that your life will be easy. But Scripture doesn't tell us that. Scripture tells us that we are blessed if we follow Jesus, but the blessings don't always come in the absence of struggle. And the blessings don't always come in the form of health, wealth, and an easy life. In fact, often the blessings come in the afterward of the struggle. Often the blessings aren't always apparent as we're going through the struggle, and we see them later in our lives. I've been reading a book that I want to share with you today by Tim Chalice, and it's called Season of Sorrow. And Tim lost his son when his son was 20 years old. He had a heart defect and died abruptly. And this book has been a wonderful book on grief, but it's not an easy book to read. I think I've shed tears in almost every chapter as I've read it, but I want to share with you part of what he talks about when we think about the blessings of God. He's talking about the verse where it talks about how God will work all things for good and how often that verse is cherry-picked out, taken to use however we deem it to be good. And this is what he says. He says, All things for good is God's assurance that if I trust him with the present, he will make good on the future. Stephen was stoned to death, and the church was scattered, but the gospel spread with it. God worked it for good. Peter suffered imprisonment, but the church learned the power of prayer God worked it for good. John was confined to Patmos, but there he received his great vision of the heavenly throne room. God worked it for good. There is no circumstance beyond for the good because there is no circumstance apart from the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so God has called me to trust him in the dry desert as in the green pastures, in the tumultuous deeps as in the gentle shallows, in the lowest sorrows as in the highest joys, for God's specialty is not bringing good from good, but good from bad. If I trust him through my tears, I am confident he will give me reason to laugh. If I trust him through my pain, he will teach me to praise. If I trust him through my grief, he will afterwards show me all the good that came with it and through it. He will show me the precious flowers in the dry desert, the beautiful blooms against the sharp thorns, the gentle petals beneath the vicious skies. For behind every black cloud is a yellow sun. Behind every dark night is a bright sky. Behind every frowning providence, a smiling face. The smiling face of the God who works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You see, God will use the struggles in our lives 
if we are willing to surrender ourselves to him. If we're willing to look to him to be the one who sustains us through these struggles. To look to him to be the reminder of grace and his plan for our lives. What happens on the other side of the struggle when we proceed in this manner is that we are sustained by God and he is glorified through our lives. So friends, let us learn from Jacob this morning. Jacob, who turned from the one who deceived others, who fled from his problems to be the one who submitted to God and walked with a limp. And yet God used him to bless the sons of Jacob, the sons of Joseph, who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Through faith, Jacob became a hero in Scripture as God used him even in his weakness. And so may God use us in our weakness today as well. And may you be encouraged to give the Lord all of your life as you trust him no matter what you go through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness of Jacob. We thank you that you used him even in his flaws, even in his mistakes. And Lord, we pray the same would be true in our own lives. Lord, may you take where we are weak and may you make us strong. Lord, where we are prideful, may you remind us that we are weak apart from you. And Lord, may we find our whole being in who you are and who you are working in our lives. So Lord, help us to submit ourselves fully to you in all areas of our life. And may we continue to walk the path that you have set before us, seeking to live in your will rather than our will. And may you be glorified through our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.